If, if you know your Bible well, if you know the Gospels well and you're reading this, you're going to be just like, ah, you, no, every, every few seconds as you go through, oh, hold on, this has happened before. Hold on, this has happened before. And, and this is meant to be what Stephen is actually doing. It's his, it's his method. He is going to use what has happened in the past to then illustrate what's really happening in the process of his trial. Now, these guys, these freedmen, they invest very heavily into rabble-rousing. Like this is top-level stirring. And they get so many people agitated about it, like scribes, priests, elders, that this comes before the council, like the full council, high priest. And the false witnesses are then put forward to lay formal, detailed charges. So here we're going to upgrade. Here's the detailed charges. This fellow never stops, motive language, speaking against this holy place, meaning the temple, but note that, this holy place, and against the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. So two things, right? He's against the temple. Jesus will destroy this holy place. That's what Jesus said. And he's against the law, saying that Jesus will change the customs of Moses. So everyone looks at Stephanos, uh, remembering he's Greek, uh, wondering what he's going to say in response. But before he does, something about his appearance, so strange, gets everyone's attention. His face is somehow angelic. Did you get that one, Marika? Yep. Uh, we've been going through, every time we get to an angel, I'm going I'm to laugh at Marika because we've been going through angels almost accidentally in our growth group quite a lot lately. And uh, yeah, it's been fun. Now, now I, want, I wonder, how did they know that this was what an angel's face looked like? Well, actually, if you stop and think about it, it makes sense. They've seen a few lately, haven't they? Some big stuff has been happening. This is, this is, they're actually starting to always get used to seeing, this is, what a picture, this is what a messenger from God looks like. We've seen some of them. Now, Stephen is there. He somehow looks like a messenger of God, which is what the word angel means. Angelos means messenger, and so it could mean a messenger from God or from Caesar. Uh, but here we've got this messenger. He, he looks like a messenger from God. He looks like someone is about to say a divine thing. And we get this massive long speech. You'll, you are going to be so thankful to know I'm not going to pick it apart argument by argument. You will get out so much from this if you then have a chance to do this yourself through the week, right? But we will get some, we'll get into a summary. Now, look, the charges were speaking against the holy place, saying he'll destroy it, and that this Jesus whom he's proclaiming um, says that he'll destroy it, but also that Jesus said that he'll change the customs that Moses handed down to us. So our task is to try and see how does Stephen answer those charges with this speech? That's how this is all set up, because that's what the, this is now what the high priest says. He says, hey, so tell me, what do you say? With these charges. Are they true? Let's see if Stephen's up to the challenge. Right, now, Stephen's careful, right? He doesn't annoy them too early. This is classic debating procedure, right? You don't get them too hot under the collar so that they can't hear the argument. He definitely wants to disagree with the charges, just wants to establish some shared premises at first, right? Some stuff that we both agree on, okay? So that if the premises that I say, that you, of course, we agree with, do actually end up leading to the conclusion, you're going to struggle to argue, aren't you? All right, so this is, this is classic Stephen, classic debating. He starts with Abraham, all right? Very Jewish theological starting point, but actually a very non-Jewish geographical starting point, right? Where did he, uh, where did he uh, appear to, to Abraham? Where did God appear to Abraham? Well, actually... He, while he was still in Mesopotamia, 
Now you think before he lived in Haran, you're like, oh yeah, whatever. You're like, no, 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 you don't get it. Haran is the place that he lived for a while that's also not in Israel. Do you get the the point? He doesn't say, yeah, he lived in Haran before he got to Canaan. We all know that. He's like, no, no, no. He he was in Ur, essentially Babylon, before he was even in Haran, which was the place that he then got another vision to say, then come to to this, this place. Like, this is a, he's very pointedly, without just so subtly, Stephen doesn't need to make any points, brutally, maybe, um, uh, and, and, and demonstrating just how far he was from this holy place when the Holy One called him to go. Now, Abraham wasn't even a Jew when he was called, right? He was Mesopotamian. God, I mean, Jews didn't exist because, of course, Judah is his great-grandson, and in fact, he only gets to Canaan after his dad dies in Haran. And then when he gets to Canaan, the thing with Abraham then, Stephen says, he, left, he leaves again. He then goes down to Egypt. God tells Abraham, I'm going to grow Israel into a nation actually down here in Egypt of all places. When you don't even own a foot of land in Israel, there's no, there's no stake for you in, in this place yet at all. This is where I'm going to do the growing. So, so you start to see what Stephen's got a kind of a geographical main point here. It's Oh, actually, first of all, he's got an emphasis. Sorry, I missed, the, I missed the paragraph. He's actually got an emphasis. Did you notice that as you look through it, it's God did this, God did that, God announced this? Yeah, you see the divine emphasis, the divine initiative here. And you get the hint that Stephen's saying, if God's track record is anything to go by, he's got a fairly fluid attachment to geography. Now we get to Joseph. The story continues with him and his relationship with his brothers. Now, Joseph is one of the most admirable characters in Scripture. Like, if Joseph has character flaws, and I'm not convinced that he is represented as having character flaws, then they're when he was a little kid, right, and a bit naive. And yet, despite that, the relationship with his brothers is rocky and sandy in that they then sell him into Egyptian slavery. And yet, in the end, Joseph is the one who's vindicated the people who represent the 12 tribes of Israel, because, you know, they're kind of named after them, the, these brothers of Joseph, they rejected him because of jealousy. And yet God made that guy who was rejected by all Israel the hero, the one who saved their lives and, in fact, saved the whole world. So you get the hint, Stephen implies but never says, if God's track record, if God's track record is anything to go by, the bloke who's inspiring jealousy in their brother Israelites, you know, like he could be the one that's actually got God on their side. And you never know, he might, God might save the world through him. You never know. Sorry, I should, have, uh, I should have thrown that slide up there. Right, next, next he tells the story of Moses, third hero of Israel. Now this, this is the council's great hero. You can just imagine all the Pharisees like, yeah, it's our boy, this is, this, is, this is Moses' time. And he's the one who would actually get them out of Egypt. So even the Pharisees probably like him because he's the one who designed, so the Sadducees, I meant to say, because he's the one who designed the temple that they're in charge of. He's the one who they patented after his tabernacle. And he's the one who brought them out of Egypt into this place who would give them the law via angels, again for you, uh, my growth group. And, and, and the law that he's been accused of speaking against, Stephen brings it up. He's like, no, no, let's talk about the law if you want to accuse me of speaking against it. And yet, again, he reminds them of a bunch of things that of course they know, of course they agree with. Well, Moses was misunderstood by, by his brother Israelites as well. Do you remember? Like, you know, are you, are you going to, 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 are you going to um, kill me for, for having a fight with my brother Israelite like you killed that Egyptian the other day? Who made you ruler over us? 
He was rejected as having no right to tell them what to do. Just as what they're saying, Jesus has no right to tell us what to do. That Moses was called from outside of Israel when he saw the burning bush, a place that God said, this is a holy place, so holy that you need to take your shoes off to be here. Just as Jesus was called outside of the city to offer his sacrifice. Uh, now, look, this is, this is the man Moses, this guy who is the man who, he led them through plagues. He stood up to pharaohs. He led them out of Egypt through the Red Sea. He, 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 he gave them the law on Sinai. He built the first tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the, the most holy place, the holy of holies, if we're talking about holy places. And yet, Moses called the people there stiff-necked. Israel's history is just of not listening to him either. So you get the hint. If God's track record is anything to go by, well, God's people themselves are probably going to resist the saviour that he sends to rescue them. That's kind of how they roll. Despite having met that one at a holy place outside of the temple, then they're going to tell him that he's got no right to instruct them. And then having been given even a divine message from God, as Stephen's giving them now with, as the angelic messenger, just like the angels are the ones who gave the law to Moses, so Israelite history sort of tradition has it, they disobeyed the law that Moses gave them, just like, well, they're going to disobey God very soon. But this one that I did throw up on there, Stephen starts to throw a few more non-hints in. This one's not a hint. You see, there was going to be one who was going to come. Do you remember? He's like saying, hey guys, remember Moses told the Israelites, there's actually going to be another one like me from among your own people. Like this, who gets rejected and disobeyed by, all, by the people who he actually provides them a way to go and to be with God. You should be expecting that. Now, we get to our fourth set of heroes. We've got David and Solomon now. Now, the men who built the first temple. David, who, who wanted to build God a house so much so that when God says, nah, look, you're like a soldier killing people, kind of cutting foreskins off Philistines kind of guy. Bit gross. Like someone else to do the interior decorating, please. You stay there. He's like, right. So even though he wasn't allowed to build a temple, he went all over the world and gathered like wood. He's like, stockpile of wood, stockpile of gold, stockpile of jewels. Stockpile. So just like got, got, got everything ready and, and, and paid for it so that his son could do it. And his son Solomon does it. And, and that pattern itself came from Moses. So, so you get Stephen saying, like, I'm, he's talking up the temple. He's talking up how important it is. He's talking up about the great heroes who are a part of its construction, its design, and all this sort of stuff. And then, so greatest of the great, greatest of the great, greatest of the great. And then he picks the greatest of the prophets. So, but you just got to remember, you just got to remember. Greatest of the prophets said this, Isaiah, in Isaiah 60. Well, actually, like, that's true, sure. But do you remember how God said to David, are you going to build a house for me? I think it's me who is the one who built houses for people. Like, you don't take care of me, I take care of you. And you see this in Isaiah 60. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house are you going to build for me? It sounds like 2 Samuel. It sounds like um, uh, 1 Samuel 17, the, the, the argument with God and when Nathan, that Nathan delivers to, uh, to David. Where could my resting place be? Like I've made all these things. It's like I buy you a Lego set and then, you know, you, you grab a minifig out and say, hey, look here, Dad, here's, the, here's what I made you. It's, it's like, you know, you should be so that. It's like, well, yeah, but I kind of gave you the Lego in the first place. 
are you sure you understand the temple as you'd think that I'm speaking against it? Now, he starts to get towards the end of his point. And, and if you thought that only scared people do this sort of debating tactic, this, this tactic of, of building common ground before pushing into the more contentious parts of the argument, uh, let's just hear, the, hear this last bit. Um, does this sound like the conclusion of a scared man? Now, can I just thank you, Peng, for like raising your voice, even at the end of a long Bible reading, you're like, all oh, right, this, this needs a little bit more oomph. All of a sudden, and it, almost as you're reading, it looks like he's flying off the handle, perhaps, right? You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one who you also killed. You who receive the law as it was given through angels, these divine messengers, the same face that Stephen seems to be displaying all through this speech, but have not obeyed it. He's not scared. He's calling them out. He's just wanted to help them get along with the argument. Now, they don't miss the point. They're enraged. They put their hands over their ears so they don't have to hear anymore, as if that wasn't sort of enough of an acting out of the very thing that they've been doing the whole time Jesus has been around and talking to them. Stephen's reaction was actually to look up. He looks up to heaven. He speaks to his God in that moment. He pays attention not to this very visceral crab. He pays attention to God. It's a beautiful thing in this moment where actually God, res- God responds to that. God, God honours his servant in that with give- allowing him to actually see him in some kind of uh, vision, some kind of sense of, of, of visualisation of Jesus standing there with him in the throne room. Not sitting down sort of like a disinterested sort of king, but, but, but standing here at this speech, attending to Stephen, his servant. Their reaction to that? Let's kill him. They stone him. Now remember, this isn't a mob. This is the high council. This this is happening in parliament, on the floor. I guess question time probably does sometimes look a little bit like this. The high priest is present for this. And they take him out, and they stone him. And his reaction to their reaction was to forgive See, Jesus' forgiveness of Stephen was so powerful in that moment. It enabled him to forgive men who are actively in the process of killing him. That's a thing, right? Like, that's powerful. I, I, I can't fathom that. I remember being bullied in high school. You know what my heart was like towards the people who were doing that? wasn't feeling much, actually, because there was fear, but when, there, when the fear was, was, was absent enough, to feel something else? That's ah, a powerful thing, the forgiveness of Jesus. And it's powerful here. Now look, we're there. We've, we've gone through the passage. That's the end. But we're going we're gonna to work hard to apply this. Uh, it's hard. I mean, because it's just a story. Like there's no bit that says, and now go do likewise. Or make sure you don't forget the poor. Why don't you try healing some people? Like it doesn't say that. It's just a story of a guy telling a story and then people getting angry at his story and, and killing him. Both people agreed on what the story was. The facts were all the same. They both have the same Old Testament. 
But these guys had a different story for the facts. One that justified themselves and meant that they didn't have to think of themselves so badly. Enabled them to live sleep at night. Now, how do you apply that to yourself? It's hard, isn't it? Like, we're not the Sanhedrin, so, like, like you don't, like, <laughs> what's, what's, the, what's the application? Like, don't stone people, you know? Uh, don't get stoned. I mean, don't, 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 don't get in bad debates and have people stone you. Don't, don't, or if, you know, Saul standing there, taking the, don't, don't work in a cloakroom. Like, you've got you to you 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 try to work out how to apply this. Now, if you have actually been stoning people this week, please stop. That's not cool. Don't do that. But, of course, that's not the point. I had a, I had a really I've had some I've had some really great um, lecturers at Bible College and 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 the the, the theological education I got given I'm so thankful and one of them he he gave us this tool and he said you got to be you got to you got to think really carefully as you're reading something like this not to just do whatever the main character does you got to ask the question though what does the author of this text despise. As you read this, what's the act, what's the, the attitude, what's the heart that, that he would, that, that you can tell Luke would just be like, oh, if you walked away from tonight having that attitude in your heart? What's the impossible application? What does the author despise? And I think it's this. I think what Luke would, ha- would say here, we can't walk away doing, thinking, feeling, is that when we see the patterns of sin, not only repeating in Israel's story, but actually repeating in our story of our life of this week that we repent from that. I think that's what he's asking us to do. You see, the pattern here is stiff-neckedness. Uh, these people were unwilling to have their mind change. I found a story that I can t- deal with, thank you. Don't make me uncomfortable, please. I, don't wanna, I, I, li- I like it thinking about it this way. The first application for us is actually to be willing to be made uncomfortable about ourselves. To be willing to face our own past. So don't be stiff-necked. Be willing to move your head. Now secondly, we have to circumcise our hearts. See, circumcision was a symbol of belonging to God. It, it was an outward appearance thing. Um, it, was, it was an external act, and it involves some surgery, right? Like, it gets cut off, okay? And so in Deuteronomy 30, when God says, I don't just want the outward, I actually want you to circumcise your hearts, we realize that the outward is meant to signify an inward internal change. Now, similarly, it'll be painful. The change of recognizing sin and turning away from it, that's, that's a hard thing to do. So repentance is two things. It's the change, it's recognizing sin, turning away from it, but then also turning towards God. For his forgiveness, yes, but also for a new pattern of life to live, to obey him. Now that circumcision, that circumcision of the heart, and when he says your hearts are uncircumcised here, he's saying, no, be willing to lose a part of yourself. Be willing to have surgery done. Be willing to have a cancer cut out, to change, to repent. There's a behaviour that maybe you're involved in that you need, might need to be different. You need to be willing to give up something to have your heart circumcised. Now, we think things are fine, and I think we all do think that our lives are fine. I mean... Is there anything that you do that you think is thoroughly unreasonable? Like, probably not, because if you did think it was unreasonable, you wouldn't do it, right? Or, the, or if you do think it's thoroughly unreasonable, you're probably trying to get a little bit of help or something like that. But 
But here he says, circumcise your hearts. Be willing to lose something that has actually become your normal. To change your behavior that you maybe even think of as necessary for your survival. Maybe you've come to believe that about it. That's not true. Maybe it's in fact a bad thing, an evil thing. So there's this attitude of being willing to have my neck turned. Being willing to lose something in the process. And then lastly to take responsibility for our actions. See, this is the thing in the, this is the, thing in the whole story, isn't it? The, the thing in the story is, is the same story as, as Adam and Eve in the garden. It's when God comes, Adam points at Eve and says, she did it, and at God and says, he did it. You gave me the woman, she did it. Eve points at the snake, he did it. When the prophets came to speak the message to God's people in the Old Testament. No, 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 no. You're the ones doing the wrong thing. And we're going to kill you for it so we don't have to hear you again. I don't want to change the story. I don't want to repent. I don't want to turn my head. I don't want to turn my heart. And that's hard work to do, isn't it? It's hard. But this is the attitude we're given, to take responsibility for our actions rather than telling a story where it's someone else's fault. See, Do you have an action in your life that you think is kind of like not ideal, like you'd like it not to be there, but you think of it as a necessary way for you to cope with the fact that that person treats you like this and that person treats you like that, or God's giving you this difficulty here? Do you have that? I'm going to throw a few examples out. They're going to be instructions to specific groups of people, but of course, in many ways, each one will be relevant to everyone. Um, husbands, it is not okay to speak harshly to your wife. Even if she deserves to be spoken to harshly. Now, I hope you felt even a little bit of recoil at the idea that someone would you know, deserve to be spoken to harshly when you're a husband and they're the wife. But, but, but even, if, even if that was the case, even if the behaviour was so thoroughly, seemingly deserving of, of being spoken to harshly, Peter the Apostle, one of the, the, the stars of, of the church, says, no, you don't get to. Now, I say this as someone who this morning stopped and thought about whether I need to go, and so I spent some time apologising to and repenting in front of my wife for this and for all the ways that I didn't take responsibility for my choices and said, but this, but you said that, but this is what I've been through, but this is what's going on, but I'm tired, but, 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 and my story... My story said that I'm fine, but I still did this. See, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your wife has done. It doesn't matter what your wife has said. It could be the truth that she did that, that she said that, and it would still be wrong. To the unmarried men here, train yourselves to speak to your mother and your sister and your sisters in Christ non-harshly, lest you carry that into marriage. And if your father, in your, your earthly father, spoke harshly to his wife, well, spend some time working, doing some work on, on, on the way that you speak in general, even if you don't, haven't followed that through, because to some degree, our normals are set by the ways that our fathers have spoken to our mums. And you just might be worth doing some pre, pre-work to take responsibility for it. So you can't say, what's that? Dad always was. Oh, you know, it's hard not to be that. I know. So? Kids. It's not okay to sin simply because your brother started it. Kids, 
you're, uh, if you're down, get your head down doing a, doing a painting, a drawing, reading some book or something like that. If you're a kid here, listen up now. It doesn't matter if your sister deserved it. Or because your parents are being unfair. So? Your, your choices are your choices. Your, your parents are your parents. So disobeying them. Imagine that you, you, your parents have said this, but it's not, a good, it's, not a, it's not a fair instruction. It's harsh on you. Well, to disobey them is to disobey God, even if you have the perfect argument in your head as to why what you want to do is fine. Get it? Wives, please don't berate your husbands in ways that run them down and show no respect to them as a human being, even if their behaviour deserves it. Don't dishonour their good efforts, even if they are kind of pathetic. Don't ignore them when they're talking to you because they're not so good at listening to you. But you're actually not a bad listener. But you don't give them that love. Single people don't excuse your sin because, well, it'd be different if I was married. I'd be, it'd be okay then. Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't need to act this way, but I'm single now, and that's hard, and so I'll, I, I need to sin in this way to cope with it. Whatever that might be. Now, look, I'm not saying that things aren't hard. It's hard not to sin. That's the point. That's why I'm up here saying it, though. You guys are godly and working your butts off to, to, to fight against sin, right? Of course it is. And I'm not saying, therefore, that you can't speak about how hard that is with your trusted people. I'm not saying don't tell your friend. It's really hard. And whinge. Have a good whinge. Tell your friend. Tell God. God wants you to talk to him, right? Tell God. You've probably got some really understandable reasons why you feel hurt. There might even be sin against you in your past and in history. That means that when this person treats you like this, it triggers something way bigger and makes your, your response seem actually really understandable. Well, if you've been there, then, you know, sure, of course, someone who's, who's had that happen to them, of course, if this happens, then they're going to react that way. You might have a thousand reasons why it's understandable and why it might be beautiful for you to share those with your friends so that there's the sympathy there and that, yeah, that is so hard. That's a good thing to do. But you can do that and not use it as an excuse for sin. Right? You can do both. You can be angry for very understandable reasons and still not sin. This is Ephesians, right? Now look, uh, that's a big hard thing that I've sort of thrown at you guys. It's hard to rethink a lot of behaviours that you knew weren't quite ideal but seem understandable or at least excusable. To check your story, the facts might be right but the analysis might be wrong, like with the Pharisees in a self-justifying way. So how do you deal with that? How do you do that? Because it's so hard. Well, I think this is why Stephen saying this is so powerful. When Stephen was there, where's the, sorry, I've got a different Bible. Yeah, here we go. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Now here's a man who knew that he had been forgiven much, right? 
That's how we get the power for this. The power for this is in the forgiveness of Jesus for us. Jesus has done the heavy lifting for us. We have been forgiven all our sins. They're gone. Even the one now that, let's say, for example, me, harsh with wife, and I have to go to my wife and I'm like, I don't want to say sorry. I don't want to repent because all these things make it really understandable and justified and I don't want to. The sin that I'm, a, that I'm struggling so hard to confess and say, hey, it's wrong and I'm sorry, and I'm going to commit to, to working my guts out to not do it even when I feel like it's thoroughly the right thing to do and justified. How do you get the courage to do that? To know that even that sin itself has already been paid for. You see, it's not like we're walking into the Sanhedrin saying, hey, I've committed blasphemy. And they're going to be like, all right, sweet, Stonia, all good. Like you're walking in to, 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 to someone who you may have wronged and saying, hey, I'm turning myself in. And Jesus is like, here's, and, and here's, your, here's your get out of jail free card. Here's your ticket. Here is your forgiveness. Here is your, 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 your turning yourself in to say, I am shameful and I've done the wrong thing and I am bad and, it's, and it is not good. And, and, and Jesus has already on the cross turned that into a glorious thing, an honourable act of confession that actually will result in praise on the last day. The forgiveness of Christ is powerful. And in that moment when you're, it's hard and you're like, but no, I feel justified. And you don't even want to think about whether or not you might actually need to say sorry if you thought hard enough. Go to the cross. Go to Jesus. Know that if there is sin in your heart, that it has been paid for. And that he will forgive you. And that even if the other person takes a while or doesn't forgive you, that you will have done the right thing. You will have honoured the Saviour who died for you. And rather than rejecting his offer of forgiveness, like these Pharisees and these Sadducees did, rejected the offer of Christ for forgiveness, you'll have gone to him, said, yes, no, it was me. And asked for his forgiveness. So let's spend a moment now doing that. If, you, if you're able to, join me in your heart and let's pray to our God. Heavenly Father, um, each of us will need your guidance of your spirit and maybe your brothers and sisters in conversations over the next week to know where it is that we excuse our sin, where we might even admit the action but tell a different story about the fact in a way that makes it okay. Father, please, when our brothers and sisters do come to us saying, hey, here's something that's not okay, may we not be stiff-necked. May we not reject the messenger who, who is actually sharing something with us to make us more like your son, Jesus. But be willing to hear it, even if it means cutting out something in our heart that's hard and painful. Father, please, by the power of your Spirit in our hearts, by the forgiveness and washing and cleansing of Jesus on the cross, give us the courage, like Stephen, to face our own guilt. And instead of doubling down by stiffening our necks, Father, please, we pray, soften and supple our spiritual muscles that we might turn and go towards you and be healed. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.